Brought to you by Fruitnet Media, this is Fruitbox. Hello, welcome to Fruitbox, Fruitnet series of conversations about the fresh fruit and vegetable business with me, Chris White. Every week I talk down the line from here in London with people from across the world of fresh produce about some of the biggest issues they face today. I want these 15-minute conversations, which we now broadcast once every week, every Wednesday, to give you the best insight into how to do better business in fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, today I want to pick up on some of the issues we've discussed in recent episodes here on Fruitbox about the nature of new investments in agriculture and about how new parts of the world where these investments might be made. And today about the development of new varieties, about fruit breeding, genetics and licensing. Now, who better uh, to join me today to discuss some of these things than uh, David Margulius, President and Chief Executive of Sunworld International. He joins me down the line from Southern California. David, welcome to Fruitbox. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, David, for those uh, of our listeners who don't know, Sunworld is one of the biggest developers of many other things, including a bunch of new table grape cultivars that are grown literally everywhere. For example, you're the guys who developed Superior Seedless and Sable Seedless, two, two varieties that we all know and enjoy. Now, I, I know too that you're a regular listener of this program. And in recent episodes, we've talked about the huge opportunities in Central Asia, Uzbekistan in particular. And then last week uh, about the need for more investment in technology and services. What have you taken from these conversations? Thank you for asking. Uh, the um, Uzbekistan uh, piece in particular, I think, was a really wonderful reminder of the uh, truly global nature of the fresh produce industry. And also uh, for those of us in uh, North America or perhaps Western Europe and, and elsewhere of the um, um, unimaginable uh, number of, of supply sources that exist for, uh, for fresh fruits and vegetables that many of us don't, don't often think about. While it's um, probably much to the chagrin of many producers, uh, there's certainly no shortage of supply. Um, and I think um, it also is a great reminder that um, during uh, times of, of short supply and, and weather events that we can always look to um, uh, more non-traditional places to source product uh, and uh, to create more continuity of supply and, and, and market stability, uh, as it were. Mm. And, and that, that, of course, is, is, is much easier said than done because there are, yes. uh, there are, uh, there are things that, that are required, and this is where you are involved so heavily in, in your business, and that's to the development of new varieties and why you should be developing varieties to resolve particular problems. And and it seems to me that there are some key issues today, and one of them, um, and we've talked about this before, is the challenge of, of, uh, of supply gaps. And the other one is this big issue about labor and how can we, well, to a certain extent, make the, the whole business we're working in, in fruits and vegetables, less labor intensive because labor is so, so much part of the cost chain today. Um, and these are some of the, uh, and this issue of labor is perhaps the single biggest challenge, I think, that faces many businesses. Um, and it's only going to become more of a challenge in future, don't you think? No question about it. The, the supply gap uh, subject as well is one that we're keenly focused on, um, as well as um, 
something that I'm sure every major multiple in the UK and every retailer on the continent and in North America and in Asia is, is well aware of uh, as well. The um, sudden, uh, relatively sudden uh, explosion of new producing areas of crops like blueberries and to some degree apples in non-traditional growing areas, certainly table grapes uh, in, in many places around the globe that um, previously weren't growing uh, any of those crops or many of them um, have created uh, enormous opportunities at retail, um, but also uh, for producers to expand their own operations from maybe a traditional location that they had in, uh, in Southern Europe uh, to expand into South America or those of um, uh, those producers that had a, a presence in, uh, in places like South Africa that might um, expand into North Africa or, or elsewhere. So we're excited about the continued expansion, which is a function not only of uh, new growing locations, but also new technologies that enable that and new varieties that also allow for uh, the production of, of varieties that uh, previously couldn't be grown in some areas that are, that are now grown there. On the subject of labor, we've been concerned uh, as um, previously a producer, we were a vertically integrated uh, uh, grower in California as well as an exporter and importer and certainly uh, one of the foremost uh, plant breeders and, and licensors of intellectual property. We've been struggling with the uh, issues of availability of labor uh, as well as increasing labor costs, particularly on these really highly labor intensive crops like grapes and berries and stone fruit that are so dependent upon the timely availability of, of uh, people to harvest and, and uh, produce crops, um, but, but also the increasing cost in a number of places like the United States and Southern Europe and Australia, where um, the, the cost um, of these highly labor-intensive crops and actually getting them off the tree or the vine in a timely manner uh, and into a cold storage facility uh, and through the supply chain uh, is increasingly uh, prohibitive, which kind of harkens toward uh, the, the need for more technology. And in particular, we think uh, the need for more significant automation, not just in the pack houses, but certainly in, in the fields and, and looking at uh, robotic harvesting capabilities for many of these uh, really highly, not only labor intensive crops, but perishable crops as well. Now, now, these technologies, let alone the new varieties, they take, I mean, years to develop, don't they, and many millions of dollars. Um, the, the, the kind of other priorities that we haven't talked about, things like water availability and so on, all, all of these issues are kind of related also to climate change. Labor isn't so much, but these other issues are. Um, there's a huge number of, of issues that you need to deal with when it comes to developing new varieties. It's, it's true, isn't it? And not only a huge number of issues, but um, the, the need for a, a really accurate crystal ball is, is critical as well. Many of the criterion that we're looking at today to um, integrate into new varieties of uh, peaches and plums and apricots and nectarines, as well as seedless table grapes, uh, really won't come to fruition uh, for another 10 or 12 years. And so for us to try and uh, determine what uh, the consumer is going to be looking for in uh, 2030 uh, or in 2035 in uh, a number of different places around the world requires us to really uh, keep a close ear to the ground uh, for uh, what our clients are looking for, what supermarket retailers and, and certainly what the consumer 
might be uh, wanting in a new table grape or a new plum or a new apricot in, uh, in 10 or 15 years. But it literally takes um, about 10 years to develop a new cultivar, a new variety. Um, and, um, and then an additional five to seven years, typically, to introduce that variety into uh, some other non-United States or, or, or outside the United States uh, through quarantine and, and the like. So there's an enormous timeline. There's an enormous cost associated with this. Um, and uh, but, but we think that... Um, there's a real demand for not only uh, better tasting fruits and vegetables, but fruits and vegetables that have higher yield capability, which will enable growers to have a more sustainable business uh, model going forward as well. Mm. And I guess the thing is, is that so many things that we thought were certain have been, have been made uncertain by this, this COVID crisis. But if we, if we come back to some of the certainties for a moment, um, over the last two decades and more, I mean, all the story has been about filling the supply gaps in the year, and that's driven a lot of the varietal development. Um, and it was really driven, again, by the supermarket retailer who wanted to make sure that they could get a, a year-round supply of a particular fruit uh, or vegetable on their shelves uh, to sell to you and I as customers. Um, is, that, is that still the story in, in table grapes, if we take that one cultivar or one group of cultivars? Or do you, you detect now a change? Is there a shift um, in, in perhaps the supermarket's priorities there? Yeah, I think the, uh, the need for year-round supplies of, of the same variety is probably driven as much by the supply side as it is by the, uh, the, the buying community. So the need for a retailer to have uh, Thompson seedless grapes year-round or a proprietary variety of grapes year-round, I, I think is a lot less... Um, significant than, than there is for the supplier community to have access to year-round supplies, which gives them a point of difference as a supplier. So what we've found is that uh, supermarkets in um, actually everywhere around the world are really interested in the same thing. They want to encourage repeat sales. They want to have a strong point of difference like anyone uh, in, in commerce. And those strong points of difference don't need to be year-round supply or supply continuity. They can also be a variety of a fruit or a vegetable that is particularly unusual and unique uh, that they can use uh, to differentiate themselves in, in the marketplace as well. So I, I think um, the, the notion of year-round supply is, is a bit overdone. Um, I, I think supply continuity of grapes in general or blueberries in general or avocados in general uh, is, is really critical to um, ensure that people have a reliable source of, of fresh fruits and vegetables. But I'm not sure that every single variety really needs to be available on a 12-month basis, mm. even though we're, we're all striving certainly to do that through either varietal development or uh, locating production in, in a number of different growing regions. Is it therefore a question of, uh, of trying to develop the, the most suitable variety for the area where it, 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 it can be best grown? Um, uh, or, or is it a question of developing more varieties that kind of crop uh, sooner or, or later it's in the season? Probably both. Uh, it depends on the, the species or the, the type of crop. Mm. So in, in many countries, there are uh, types of fruits and vegetables that can be grown more successfully than in other countries. In a crop like table grapes, you tend to have um, more success growing grapes in, uh, in most countries around the world. So there's not as much geographic specificity or, or uniqueness to it. 
Um, but we have certainly um, tried to adapt some varieties to certain locations that have perhaps cooler nights or better growing conditions or mm -hmm. more uh, moderate conditions that are suitable for uh, post-harvest handling uh, and, and so forth. On the other hand, there's been an incredible proliferation of uh, new varieties in a number of product categories, apples being one, uh, table grapes being another. If you look back 20 years, uh, there were probably 20 varieties of table grapes, and today there are pushing 100 uh, individual varieties of grapes, many of which, actually most of which, are, are proprietary and coming out of private breeding programs designed to um, please consumers and, and uh, also meet the needs of retailers and, and certainly the grower community uh, internationally. Mm. And this brings us on to the, to the final bit of today's discussion, which is this whole question about intellectual property. Mm. Um, because with, with so many proprietary varieties around, it's really fundamental um, to how you can control uh, the IP of, 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 of the variety that you're developing. Uh, you divested, uh, as you said earlier, um, from your growing operations uh, last year. And so this whole area of, uh, of control of genetics and, uh, and, and the control of intellectual property related to these genetics is, is so much more fundamental now to your business. It always was, but it's now the core of it. Um, and, and I know it's kind of from the various conversations we've had over the years, one hell of a struggle uh, for you guys to keep tight or to keep hold of your intellectual property is, is the struggle is the struggle getting any easier um and, and what do you see the, the big challenges in ip to be in in future for you yeah i don't i don't know that the struggle is getting any easier i think we've um, all adjusted to the fact that um uh, not only developing new varieties but enabling their protection and uh, the enforceability of those varieties is is just as critical so today we spend as much of our resources on protection as we do on development of varieties, which on the one hand is a, is a sad statement. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it enables us to continue to develop and release varieties that are um, appreciated by consumers uh, throughout most of the major um, growing and consuming regions of, of the world and, and markets of the world. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you think more creatively and, and with a little bit more imagination, it would enable us to double the size of the breeding program if we could reallocate some of those uh, resources to, to pure uh, innovation and, and creativity and, and, and variety development. So it's become a, a bit of a reality for us in, in many parts of the world. There are certain countries that we struggle with more. Uh, the culture, I think, is, um, is such that uh, there's less respect for intellectual property rights. But in most of the major fruit producing countries of the world, we've seen a huge shift in um, the increased respect for IP, the enforceability uh, within the court system in, in most countries, um, and, and certainly the uh, supermarkets uh, respect for, um, for the intellectual property rights of the genetics providers uh, that um, uh, their growers are, are accessing. And, and David, why, why do you think this has happened? Why has there been this change? I think a lot of it is it goes back to this constant need for differentiation and, and uh, innovation and the realization that if people don't respect those rights, uh, they, they will lose that uh, source of supply and the, um, the continuous um, introduction of, of new, new cultivars, whether it's in the berry category or grapes 
uh, or peaches uh, and plums that are coming out of some really wonderful breeding programs around the world. Uh, I think most retailers and growers uh, are, are very cognizant of the fact that um, protection is important and respect for those rights is, is important. So where the grower of maybe 15 or 20 years ago thought nothing of walking next door and, and borrowing some plant material from their neighbor, I think most growers today realize that if uh, they want to have reliable access to uh, innovation and, uh, and a constant supply of, of flavor, new flavorful varieties, uh, that, that the respect for that IP is, is really paramount. That's very, very interesting. David, that's all we've got time for today on Fruitbox. I was joined down the line from California by David Margulius of Sunworld International. David, great to talk to you again. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Pleasure. Great to be with you, Chris. Now, you can find today's conversation with David and the many others I'm having here at Fruitbox on our website, fruitnet.com. We've got some more great guests coming on the program in the next few weeks, so keep listening in. Oh, and if you've got any ideas of what you'd like me to talk about on Fruitbox, or even if you'd like to feature in a future episode, then do get in touch. My email address is chris at fruitnet.com. Fruitbox is getting loads of listens every week. Look out for us on LinkedIn, where I'm posting every episode every week. My profile name is Chris Fruitnet. And the interviews are getting loads of likes, comments, and shares. We've also had our first sponsored episodes of Fruitbox. So if you'd like to get your name out there to all our listeners by becoming a supporter, then please do get in touch as well. That was Fruitbox, and this is Chris White. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. To sponsor a future episode, please email advertising at fruitnet.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Fruitnet Live. And don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest fresh produce industry news at fruitnet.com.